Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about a meeting of the OIC being called by Pakistan. We're going to talk about the weekly update on the Poland-Belarus issue, which I've given a name to, and how Ukraine's fall will have a domino effect where Taiwan's fall won't. All that and more, coming up. get into the rapid fire news so we have a border skirmish between iran and the islamic emirate uh broke out last week and there was high tensions but they've calmed down now as both sides have decided to pursue talks which goes to show one sort of the instability that is there all right let's be honest there is a deal of instability within afghanistan but it also goes to show two other things one the the willingness of the new government the islamic emirate in afghanistan and iran to work with each other to resolve disputes peacefully because they could have just resorted to shooting at each other harder but they've resorted to talks that have quieted the situation down and rather fast. They've done that really quickly, too. So what you have here is the proof of recognition by Afghanistan's neighbors of the new regime and its legitimacy, which proves my point that I made way back when the Taliban, uh, the, the weeks following the Taliban taking control of Afghanistan, that they had all the legitimacy that they needed. They won the war, one that's within Afghanistan, so then it's just a matter of consolidating power. Number two, their neighbors are more than willing to work with the Islamic Emirate instead of claiming that they're an illegitimate government and playing games and trying to deliberately sabotage the regime. The neighbors are working with them. Russia, who has rallied Central Asia to work with them. China, who's working with them. Pakistan and Iran. They're all working with the Islamic Emirate, not against the Islamic Emirate. And since Afghanistan's a landlocked nation, that's really all that they need in terms of legitimacy, because the rest they can do on their own. The rest is within Afghanistan itself. So that's one of the things that we can take away from this conflict and its resolution. The other thing, though, is it's sort of it's sort of a, a marker on where the Taliban has come. Because remember, back when they took control, I brought up that now they have to transition from being a fighting force to a governing force. And this is a key moment. They have, and really, it really does exemplify fighting and governing right, right in this instance here of a border skirmish followed by talks. They've gone from fighting to talking uh, like like that. So they're making significant progress in that transition from being an army to a governing body. And so far, it seems like they're doing a relatively decent job, you know, at least in terms of the foreign affairs aspect. There's uh, still unrest within Afghanistan itself. But a governing body that has the guns to quell unrest at home and the diplomatic savvy to keep their neighbors off their backs, even when you shot at your neighbors in a border skirmish, that does bode well for the Islamic Emirate. Uh, but we'll sort of be talking a little bit more about Afghanistan and the, the response to the instability in Afghanistan in a minute when we get to the meat. But those are some of the takeaways from the this border skirmish that I wanted to point out. Uh, we have Turkish President Erdogan, who has avoided an assassination attempt. Uh, a bomb was placed under the car of one of his uh, 
top officials who was at the rally with him. Uh, the bomb was found, and he avoided being assassinated. So that's probably going to bring about another round of crackdowns on people within the Turkish government and people living within Turkey itself, which will probably result in a greater consolidation of power onto Erdogan's person, because um, I don't see something like that, you know, necessarily driving, uh, as a necessarily driving force for decentralization of power. I see it as an excuse for the centralization of power, which I, I guess in a, a, a hype Herbally sense means we're, we've gotten one step closer to a caliph, uh, but who knows? We'll, we'll get there when we get there. But for now, it seems like a he has the perfect excuse now to take more power for himself, and he probably will do it because this is what he did the last time. There was a, a coup against him. He cracked down, purged a lot of the military and politicians and officials, and seized power for himself probably going to do that again although to a lesser degree i would assume because it's an assassination attempt not a coup so we'll, we'll see where turkey goes uh, especially with their currency in freefall so it'll be interesting to see where turkey comes out on the other side of that crisis in particular yeah there are a number of ways they can go but we'll really just have to watch and see we have the Indian military, uh, well, let me rephrase that, an Indian military mishap results in unintended death, which caused riots in the cities of Oting and Tiru, which are located in India's Mon district. And in these riots, three, 13 civilians and one soldier have died. So, unrest in India over a misfire in an... Indian military operation within the country. So, they're in a, a tough spot. Mm, but the, we'll see if this has any larger consequences to it. But for now, it seems to be a largely local affair. The UK has joined in French naval exercise. Uh, the French have allowed the UK to join them in one of their routine naval exercises, uh, which is a bit of a shock, considering the, how do you say, devolved state of the relationship between France and the UK over fishing rights, but I guess this is sort of, sort of reminiscent of how France and Britain interacted back in the 19th century when France was overtaken by Germany as the dominant power on land, on the continent. So then you had the rivalry between France and Britain continue, but you had cooperation between those two as well, because there was a larger threat. And France, having been dethroned, was now no longer the potential hegemon. They were a hedge against the hegemon, so the British were willing to work with them they were willing to work with others to pursue their aims rather than trying to do it by themselves. And today, it is Russia who is the dominant potential hegemon in Europe. Even though the French do have the best army on the continent of Europe, outside of Russia, obviously. They have a... It's not saying much, but, you know, the French have a functioning military. They manufacture all their equipment. So they're in a much better position from everyone else who isn't Russia and U.S., I guess. But in this exercise, the French admiral, Pierre Vandier, he specifically pointed to China and Russia as potential enemies in the future. And given that the French and the U.K. are increasingly involving themselves in... Africa, for in the case of the French, and in the South China Sea and Oceania, in the case of Britain. And I guess France tried as well with their submarine deal with Australia that was reneged on. 
But the two of them are trying to expand their influence into places where China is also expanding their influence. So it does make sense for them to view China as a potential adversary. China has a large and growing sphere of influence in Africa. France has a large and growing sphere of influence in Africa. I feel the two are going to check and balance each other there with a number of other players too, but they're probably going to be the main ones. Britain and its navy are going to coalesce with the other navies in the South China Sea in Oceania region to check and balance Chinese expansion there. So I do see that. It's not sort of just them being just anti-China. There are legitimate geostrategic reasons to believe that both of them, Britain and France, will find themselves at odds with China over something other than the system, preferred system of governance. So that's pretty interesting that they've come together on this issue. Now there's also Russia, of course, who, for the sake of balance of power in Europe, yes, it's obvious that Russia would be the target uh, or a potential adversary, because that's how Britain and France have worked ever since Germany overtook France as the dominant power on the continent. And France has never been the dominant power on the continent since. They've always been a secondary power on the continent, meaning that they have to work to balance off against whoever the hegemon appears to be. Usually that's been Germany, but since World War II, it's been Russia. Then Germany reunified after the fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall. So then Germany became the potential hegemon again. Now Russia is resurgent, and Germany's army is nowhere to be found. So ever since they had, were dethroned, they've been in this position where they have to balance against the other countries who happen to be potential hegemons rather than being potential hegemons themselves, which works great for Britain because Britain uses other countries on the continent to balance off against potential hegemons, which sort of brings the two into a, a symbiosis uh, in spite of their rivalry with one another and in spite of their ongoing disputes with one another. It's very interesting to to look at. But those two observations that they will, one, probably find themselves in conflict with Russia, and two, may find themselves in conflict with China, are likely. So I see this as being appropriate, even if it is a bit strange, given the things going on between the UK and France. That's that. And speaking of the UK, their trade minister has taken a trip to the United States, probably to attempt to finish that trade deal that they were trying to negotiate with the U.S. and are still trying to negotiate with the U.S., but it has never been finalized. Uh, Madagascar has begun a trial for alleged coup conspirators on the island, uh, some of whom were French. And the significance of that is that Madagascar used to be a French colony um, before decolonization happened. So there's an interesting thing going on there. South Korea has expanded its vaccine mandate, uh, requiring more areas and more venues to sort of adhere to the system that they've imposed on people. Uh, that they've imposed on people. The U.S. and Europe are imposing more sanctions on Belarus now, in light of the devolving situation going on there, and we'll talk more about it in a minute. And the UAE has now is now set to acquire 80 French Raphael fighter jets. I wonder what they're preparing for, because that, that's a lot. All right. if, if you're not the country manufacturing these and trying to guarantee that the company making them has them in production for whenever you might need them, like the United States and France and Russia do for their military industries... If you're the country buying, the, having to buy these weapons from the other countries who are making them, that is a very large number. And when you look at the size of the UAE, that's a really large number of planes that they're buying. I wonder if they're preparing for potential conflict themselves. It would 
Uh, I mean, at first glance, it would appear that way. Maybe they're just modernizing their air fleet. Um, but that's a really large number of planes for this country that doesn't have many hostile neighbors other than Iran. And Qatar, who is an ally of Turkey. Very interesting, though. Very, very interesting that they're buying so many of these fighter jets. We'll see if it goes through all the way and they get all 80, or if they cancel, or if they never need to use them, or if they need to use them. It'll be very interesting to see. But I thought it was uh, very notable that they bought so many. Really caught my attention. But that's the rapid fire news, and we'll get into the meat in just a minute. All right, now we're going to get into the meat. So, we have the fate of Afghanistan being called into question. Pakistan's foreign minister last week has called for a meeting of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC. He's called for that meeting, and they are set to convene on December 19th of this year. And some of the more notable members of this organization, which has, I believe, 42 member states, uh, some of the more notable members are Afghanistan itself, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Indonesia, Morocco, Pakistan, Turkey, and the UAE. So, those are some of the big boys there. Russia is also there, as they are a, they're an observer. And the criteria isn't necessarily that you're a majority Muslim nation, but that you have a large Muslim population within your nation, so countries like Russia can qualify. So there's that. Well, Russia's not in it, they're an observer, but I digress. Uh, representatives from the EU and the countries of the UN Security Council, so that's America, the UK, France, China, and again Russia, are also invited to join. The main topic of this meeting is going to be the instability currently present in Afghanistan, which was, which is to be expected. It was to be expected. The Taliban took control through violent means, so now they have to sort of assert the fact that they're the government now. And it's only been, what, a couple months since they took power, so the unrest and the resistance is probably still there, which is why we're having this meeting being called over the stability in Afghanistan. So it was to be expected, and they're still in the process of consolidating their power. But while that's been happening, the country's economy has also begun struggling, especially with the withdrawal of U.S. financial aid, and an adjustment was definitely in order due to just those changes alone, the changing, the sudden change in government, all right, in a quite radical swing from a democratic system to the theocratic system. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. So from a democratic system to a theocratic system was the swing in government. The fact that that occurred through violent means, uh, there was a war going on in the country, and the sudden withdrawal of U.S. financial aid, those factors combined to create a wombo combo in this country. And they're reeling from it and trying to recover the best that they can. But those are some pretty big wombos that have been comboed onto this country. So they're in a, a rough spot right now. And Pakistan has called the meeting of the OIC over it. Though, I will stress that the economic part of this problem might not be as bad as it is right now if the United States uh, allowed the Islamic Emirate to access their foreign cash reserves, which are in U.S. dollars, um, I believe, and they've been withheld from the Islamic Emirate by the United States. So, there's that... Uh, just throw that in there, the situation economically might not be as dire as it is. I don't know if them having the full extent of their cash reserves could bail them out of the crisis. 
but perhaps they would have something to hold them over to lessen the problem and lessen the burden so that it wouldn't be as unstable as it is right now. Um, and my stance is that it's their money. Let let them have it. It's their money. Now, if they blow through it and they end up right back to where they are now, then so be it. It was their money. Let them spend it how they want it. If they spend it irresponsibly, well, then the consequences are theirs. But they're struggling financially. They're asking for their money, and it's billions of dollars we're talking about here. And we're not letting them have their money. So that's sort of a a stab at us because we're partially responsible for making this problem as bad as it is. I'm not going to blame this on U.S. withdrawal. I'm just not going to do that because U.S. shouldn't have been there in the first place. U.S. withdrawing from the country militarily was a good thing. And U.S. withdrawing financially, I believe, was also a good thing. Our tax money shouldn't be going to foreign countries. That being said, we have our money, all right? We've taken our money from them. Give them their money. It's theirs. Let them use it. That's my stance. Um, But for right now, again, they have billions being withheld from them. And... I do believe this may be brought up at the OIC meeting, the the foreign reserves that are being withheld from the Islamic Emirate. Because if you're going to talk about unrest and the economy and the instability, that's inevitably going to lead to a conversation about the money being withheld from them and how that could help them if they got it. We're probably going to see pressure being put on the U.S., especially since the Islamic Emirate has... Russia as an, a backer in this endeavor. Russia has openly, they've openly backed the Islamic Emirates' attempts to recover these funds, and have called on the U.S. themselves, us, to allow them to access their funds. And I'm, I'm on board. It's their money. So, with Russia as an observer, and a backer, a solid backer we can probably expect the Islamic Emirate, whoever they send as their delegates here to this meeting, to really uh, really try to get the other members of this meeting to consider putting pressure on the United States to let them have their money. The U.S. is probably going to refuse to do so, and just because Russia said so. So, all that, and they don't want to lose face in the face of Afghanistan. So this is probably going to be an ongoing drama and they're probably not going to get their money back until a couple decades later when the the issue has died down in the minds of most people in the United States. And then the government will very quietly give them their reserves back. Although I will propose, I'll propose, that since there are U.S. citizens that are stranded in Afghanistan... The government of the United, our government in the United States refuses to acknowledge that those people are there. But, but, with the reality that they are there, and the reality that the Islamic Emirate wants their reserves, why not make a trade where we get our citizens back, they get their money, and we both go our separate ways. We complete the withdrawal we complete the separation so to speak that's i'll propose that i'll just leave that on the table and you can make of that proposal what you will if we're smart some sort of deal like that will be arranged to where both sides can save face and go their own way so that there's that that's a possibility again just gonna leave that on the table uh, so there's that. But uh, Afghanistan is in a rough spot. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation is coming together to talk about it, and there might be a resolution for other Islamic countries to help them. Well, they have been receiving various spurts of foreign aid from countries sympathetic to the people living in Afghanistan. 
uh, Pakistan, I believe, even allowed food and aid from India to cross Pakistan's border to get to Afghanistan. So there is help that is readily available to Afghanistan, and this meeting might help sort of coordinate the effort between more countries. So we might see something good come out of this for Afghanistan. Um, and we'll, we'll just see where that goes. You know, that, That's sort of the key thing with situations like these. Because people can talk a lot. Doing is another thing. But sometimes people do. So we will see. Now, we're going to talk about uh, the update to the situation in Eastern Europe. Because Belarus has upped the ante. Last week, we were talking about Lithuania and how they were the ones to up the ante by trying to trying to bring in NATO into the situation and to get a stronger response out of NATO, uh, a response to the what I now call the Eastern question. There was the old Eastern question that referred to the Ottoman Empire and its decline, but this time, I used that same phrase in reference to the larger geopolitical situation involving disputes, tensions, and even wars in Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, Poland, and the Baltics. So that entire, sort of the entire former Soviet space in there, plus Poland, and the disputes and tensions going on between them, because it's... It's larger than Ukraine, it's larger than Belarus, so I don't want to say it's, uh, I don't want to center it too much around Ukraine, Belarus, or even Russia itself, but that's sort of the general area we're talking about here. It's in Eastern Europe, it's uh, a question, the entire thing is in question because of the tensions, and the strange yet hostile interactions and constantly devolving uh, relationship between the countries involved that lead me to call it what it is an eastern question because we don't know where this is going to go um it could turn around it could not it could go well for the people bringing about the con the conflict it could go really bad ukraine and belarus could disappear and become geographic expressions within russia but they don't necessarily have to we don't know where it goes, but where it goes is the question. And it's in the East. That's the Eastern question. So, in the Eastern question, we've talked before about the growing possibility of war in this region. Uh, we talked last week in the episode uh, pretty extensively about the dispositions of the two sides, that being Russia, the rebel republics in Ukraine, and Belarus, versus NATO, that being the Baltics, Poland, the United States, um, and other NATO members, and whether or not they would live up to their alliance. And we assumed that everyone honored their alliance, and everyone brought their troops to bear, and I laid out who I believe would come out on top in that. So we talked more about that last week, so if you want to dive into that, it's in last week's episode. Uh, I believe that Russia would win for reasons I explained in that episode. And that was when it was Lithuania upping the ante, bringing in NATO into the equation. Now, since then, NATO has sort of issued their response in that they aren't down with sort of escalating the situation. But the situation is escalating anyway and more and more calls within Ukraine to join NATO have popped up and they've gotten stronger and even more radical. Um, but it is Belarus now who's up in the ante. Now, I believe, I believe, uh, yes, okay, because I, I was looking for a quote that I had from Ukraine, and I have another segment on Ukraine coming up, and where I have it written down. So you'll you'll see what I mean when I say that the calls for Ukraine's integration into NATO are getting more radical. 
in even in spite of NATO's response to uh, the possibility that NATO should do something in this region. And although that is Ukraine and not Belarus, I feel the two are more interconnected than even the two would like to be. More interconnected than NATO would like it to be as well. And that favors the Russian position greatly because of the interconnectivity of the issues and the, the players involved. But back to Belarus, because they have upped the ante. How'd they do this? Well, uh, Belarus, last week, one of, the, one of the central players in this drama has taken their cue to up the ante themselves. And in an interview with Belarusian President Lukashenko, when the topic of a potential redeployment of U.S. nuclear missiles to Eastern Europe came up, Lukashenko responded by saying that he would invite President Putin of Russia to redeploy Russian nuclear missiles to bases in Belarus. These bases have been maintained since the Soviet era, and the infrastructure to them and around them have been maintained as well. So they're ready to go. Well, probably mostly ready to go in the event that something like this were to happen. Which is probably why he brought it up in the first place. They're ready to go. And that ups the ante greatly. It ups the ante greatly. Because that would bring both Russian and U.S. missiles closer to one another. Um, U.S. missiles would be pushed to Eastern Europe. That's Poland. That's the Baltics. That's Romania. Hungary. But Russia would then, if that happens, they would have a willing partner in deploying their missiles closer as well by putting them in Belarus. So that alone opens the door to a radical escalation of this situation um, I I was almost speechless when I saw it. I didn't think it was real, but it is. Although, it's worth stressing that it's, again, reactionary. It's a response that is ready to be taken by Belarus, and probably even by Russia as well, because Russia backs Belarus 100%, because this is core Russian interest we're talking about here are the integration of the former Soviet space, particularly the states in Europe, are of core Russian interests. I don't doubt that they would go along with a redeployment of their missiles into Belarus because it is in their interest to do so. And at that point, they would be responding to the U.S. moving troops and missiles to the border between, to the borderlands anyway. So from that point of view, they'd be responding not the aggressors, and it would be in their interest to do so as well. So the combination leads me to believe that Russia would go along with it. Now, there's the possibility that they don't, even if the U.S. moves their missiles to Eastern Europe, but I believe that they, there's a strong chance that they might, j given the reasons I've laid out to you. But, now, uh, again, this will only happen if U.S. missiles get moved to Eastern Europe. But should this happen, I will note, uh, if, if the Russian missiles get moved to Belarus, then that would necessitate a permanent and larger Russian military presence in Belarus. And what I mean by that is it wouldn't, there wouldn't just be the missiles being moved to Belarus and the troops to operate the bases and the missiles in Belarus. If the Russian missiles get moved into Belarus that would then necessitate that they bring in army units and warplanes and the air defense systems necessary to protect these missile bases, which would mean that if things develop this way, if U.S. missiles are moved into Eastern Europe and Belarus and Lukashenko gives Putin that call, hey, we're down for some Russian missiles, there wouldn't just be now there's nuclear missiles in Belarus. That would mean that would mean a huge footprint, a much larger footprint of the Russian military in Belarus. 
just by necessity of defending these highly critical bases now. It would also mean that Belarus and Russia became that much closer to effectively being one country. And that's huge, because at that point, it'd be like a state governor in the United States asking the federal government to protect their lands by bringing in the army. Because the states don't have the right to do that. The federal government has the right to do that. Federal government then steps in with the army and deploys nuclear missiles to the state. And at that point, you need troops, federal troops, to defend the state and to defend the infrastructure within it. And it would be a huge increase in the presence of federal government within the state. So you apply that to Belarus, Belarus effectively becomes a state within Russia, the federal government. Belarus becomes a Russian republic in all but name. And that would be a pretty large development, a pretty large change, a shift from what we've seen so far. But it wouldn't be unsurprising. Well, I mean, excuse me, it wouldn't be surprising to me. Because, as far as I'm concerned, that's the direction that all these pushes and putting pressure on Ukraine and putting pressure on Belarus are going to drive Belarus to do. Because they only have one way to go. They can only go to Russia because of the response of their neighbors. Russia is their only friend. Russia is the only country who can and is willing to protect them. They have no choice but to go to Russia because of the way that their neighbors, their other neighbors, are coming at them. So, you get the Union State. The harder they push Belarus, the stronger the Union State becomes. I don't know if that's been realized yet by the push, the people doing the pushing, but that's where we are. And if things go this way, which is, again, really, really upping the ante here, you get an effective annexation of Belarus by the Russians, courtesy of the Russian military. Because that would be a huge military footprint. And I don't think, I don't think NATO is ready for that. Uh, and that's probably why NATO said that they don't want to get involved in the situation between Poland and Belarus. Because it, it just isn't in their interest to do so. But then again, you have... Russia demanding now that NATO agree to not expand. And I mean that they want NATO to agree to that on a, on a legal document, saying that they will not expand further east in Europe. And NATO, the United States and Europe are unwilling to accept that. Which is strange to me, because if I remember correctly, we were the ones who made that promise to Russia... After the Soviet Union collapsed, we were the ones who made the promise that we wouldn't expand eastward. And then we expanded eastward. Russia's again asking us to honor this promise. And we're really, really not trying to live up to that. Uh, so I guess that just uh, enables me to make a very smooth transition into the other topic, which is the Ukrainian domino. And that Russia demanding that U.S. and Europe and NATO as in general agree to a legal document saying they won't expand further east. Uh, that's, that's one of the things I have here. And, I, I mean, I don't see why we shouldn't. I don't, I don't see the problem with what they're asking, especially because they're asking us to do what we promised them that we would do way back when. I don't see the problem. Uh, I don't see how expanding NATO further east is going to help us. It just makes Russia angrier and increases the threat that we're going to end up at war with them. I don't think it's a good idea. So I'm opposed to it. And that's before that's before the isolationism kicks in. I don't see it as being a good move to keep going further east. We'd gain less by doing so, and we gain more in the terms of an enemy that wants to compromise less and less and less the closer and closer and closer we get to their border. So, I don't think it's a good idea. 
And Russia definitely doesn't think it's a good idea to keep pushing eastward anyway. So I guess that puts me in their corner. But in response to Russia making this demand, and this was Putin making the demand himself, the Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitro Kuleba, he said in a response to this that, quote, Russia cannot stop Ukraine from getting closer to NATO and has no right to say that they have no right to have any say in relevant discussions. And that's the quote. Uh, he then went on to say, quote, any Russian proposals to discuss with NATO or the United States or any other country any so-called guarantees that the alliance would not expand to the east are illegitimate. And that's the end of that quote. So, when I mentioned earlier that calls for Ukrainian integration with NATO have gotten uh, more radical, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, they, that's, again, it's not an unreasonable request for Russia to say, hey, don't go further east. Don't expand your lines further east. We, pro we promised him that we would do it. And he's not saying abolish NATO. He, he's more lenient towards NATO than I am on, a, on my personal politics. But what you have here is a reasonable request being met with by this radical, radical response. They have no right to have any say in relevant discussions. I mean, you're talking about a country that is on Russia's border, that is debating whether or not to join an alliance whose sole purpose is to screw Russia over. Why? It's not unreasonable for Russia to say, hey, maybe you uh, shouldn't join NATO. Maybe we need legal guarantees from NATO that they're not going to expand eastward because they haven't lived up to their word now we want legal guarantees. So, the, we have an escalating situation here in not just Belarus and Poland, but in Ukraine. Just looking at their, their ambitions to become one with NATO and the response to a very reasonable request that they not become one with NATO. Uh, so... NATO expansionism is running hard up against Russian red lines. That's that's what's going on here. Russia is holding firm on its red lines. NATO expansionism is running hard up against those red lines because NATO hasn't said no. They they haven't said no to expansion. They haven't shut down the proposal by the Ukraine to jo join NATO, although NATO really doesn't want to have a neighbor well not a neighbor a member state that's already at war join the alliance but at the same time they're not willing to just let them down easy and say well you have to resolve that conflict before you can get in they they're unwilling to say that and more even more than that they're unwilling to say no they haven't just said no you're not going to join nato they're leaving open the possibility. They're going for strategic ambiguity on this one. I'm not a fan of strategic ambiguity. I think you should make it clear where you stand so that there's no mishaps, no misunderstandings between the two sides on an issue. But what we have here is strategic ambiguity over whether or not they're going to allow Ukraine into NATO. So again, you have yet another reason for Russia to ask for legal guarantees out of NATO. They want them to sign a document saying they're not going to go further east. And Ukraine is upset by this because they want to join NATO. And I mentioned in last episode that due to the integration and the calls for integration between Ukraine and NATO, if there was a war in this region, just between NATO and Belarus, Ukraine would be the first to fall, courtesy of the politics involved. NATO wants to be a part of... No, Ukraine wants to be a part of NATO... Russia can't have that liability. They would have to go after Ukraine if there was a conflict between Poland and Belarus. And NATO got involved. I explained more on that in the last episode. But you can see here that 
something's something's got to give. Something has got to give. It's not going to be Russia. It doesn't look like it's going to be the U.S. NATO looks like it may or may not be buckling because they're kind of divided on the issue. They're saying one thing and doing another and then doing another thing that strangely contradicts that NATO is in a weird spot. But I don't think that they will have, be the ones to give. I think it's going to be Ukraine. I think it's going to be Ukraine itself. Something's got to give, and I believe it's going to be Ukraine. Ukraine falls due to pressures external and internal. And we can just look at this Eastern question going on and the tensions within the former Soviet space here. Ukraine may be the first casualty in this larger geostrategic game. And should it fall, for reasons I've, again, laid out in last week's episode, should Ukraine fall, it will be a domino. And I say that due to the nature of the conflict surrounding Due to the nature of the conflict within the Ukraine and the situation of the countries surrounding Ukraine. And I'm not one for domino theory. Alright, I I don't believe that, oh, if the one country falls, every other country is going to fall. And then all of a sudden this enemy of ours is going to be at our doorstep because America is too far away for that. It's just not going to happen. But I believe that with Ukraine, there is the greater... When it falls, more possibilities will open up. Not necessarily that other countries are just going to start falling left and right and being annexed by Russia. No. Ukraine falls, and that opens a whole hallway of doors for Russia. Ukraine falls. Russia has the clout to force the issue of the Union state with Belarus. I don't think they're going to have to force the issue in, in the not-too-distant future. Hell, Belarus might even integrate with Russia before the fall of Ukraine at the rate things are going. You have Moldova. Russia's going to want that back. And they will make attempts. Maybe Moldova will go willingly, seeing the radically increased size of Russia and logically assuming that the military prowess is going to be equal to the increase in size. There's Transitria, a country that is really small, I believe it's smushed between Ukraine and Moldova. If it's not between them, it's between... Actually, let me just look for this. Uh, Yeah, yeah, okay. It's a very long and thin country, smushed between Moldova and Ukraine. So if Ukraine falls, uh, Russia now has a direct land corridor to to Transnistria, where there's already a Russian troop presence. So that's an effective immediate annexation of this region of land. So it goes from being an enclave to a contiguous piece of Russia. So there's Transnistria. There is, of course, then the Baltics, who will be put under pressure by Russia, um, whether that's through direct means, through the fact of Russia's expansion, just the new facts on the ground, or they'll fall deeper within Russia's economic orbit, or those large Russian minorities within these countries will be used in similar fashion to the rebellion that happened in eastern Ukraine, except they'll probably have more direct support from Russia, and the wars there probably won't last as long as they have in Ukraine. So we could see ethnic Russian uprisings in the Baltics, the annexation of Transnistria, uh, pressure on Moldova to either align themselves with Russia or to become integrated with Russia. The Union state with Belarus, there'd be more leverage to push that forward, although that one may happen independently of Ukraine. If Ukraine falls... All of this becomes much easier for Russia to do just through the changed nature of their borders. Again, I point to the Transnistria example. So Ukraine falling would be closer to a domino in the sense of what people think when they think of 
say, Taiwan. When Taiwan falls, people assume that, oh, Japan is next, and the Philippines, and then Indonesia, and then all of a sudden they're going to be at Australia, and then they're going to be at uh, San Francisco in the United States. That's not going to happen. China taking Taiwan, that's not going to be a domino. And for the reason that any danger that, say, Japan or Australia are in, courtesy of the Chinese military, China taking Taiwan doesn't present any new danger. Shanghai, the distance between Shanghai and Japan is closer, it's shorter, I should say, than the distance from Taiwan to Japan. So any threat that Japan would be in from China owning Taiwan, they're already in because there is a part of mainland China that is closer to Japan than Taiwan is. And if distance is the key here, then China does not need Taiwan to go after Japan. And the same thing with Australia. There is an island uh, off the southern coast of China. It's called Hainan. It is closer to Australia than Taiwan is. So any danger that Australia would be in from the Chinese acquisition of Taiwan, they're already in because Hainan is closer. Hainan is closer. So Taiwan falling really doesn't change the geostrategic position of those countries. It alters things for the Philippines, maybe. Because the Philippines is right next to Taiwan. It alters things maybe for the U.S. presence in Guam. But other than that, everyone else has parts of China, parts of mainland China at that, that are closer to them than Taiwan is. So Taiwan falling doesn't change the, the calculus all that much. It just means that China has another angle from which they might be able to approach you. And even then, that depends on whether or not you're... You're even in the right direction for that to matter. Because Vietnam, for Vietnam, the fall of Taiwan means nothing. They have a whole land border with China. And Taiwan is far away. They're on the other side of the South China Sea. I mean, Taiwan falling means nothing for South Korea. They have a de facto border with China, courtesy of North Korea. Although things are changing between the North and South there. But they have an, a peninsula in China, multiple of them, that jut out towards South Korea that the Chinese could use to attack South Korea anyway. And they're all, they're much closer to the mainland than Taiwan is to South Korea. It really, Taiwan falling really doesn't change the situation that these countries have to factor in, especially Australia, who has a whole country called Indonesia between them and China. They have the Philippines on top of that. So Taiwan, between Taiwan and Australia, there's the Philippines and Indonesia. There is really no danger, to, no direct threat to the Australians that is posed from the fall of Taiwan. It's just not as significant as people make it out to be for ideological reasons. But if you look at the map, it just doesn't change much. Other than the fact that China owns this island now, and they can go beyond the first island chain. Can go beyond the first island chain. Not that they will conquer the first island chain. Not that they will suddenly find themselves in, in Los Angeles with a million warships. But that they can go beyond. And that's it. Taiwan, from a geostrategic point of view, just isn't as significant as many hype it up to be. And you can see it when you look at just Google Earth. So Taiwan will not be a domino for that reason alone. But then when you look at the nature of the conflict in Ukraine and how the only way that Russia gets involved there is if the Ukrainian government does an offensive against the rebels. Then Russia will step in. 
And if Russia steps in, then the United States might step in. And then, and only then, does China have an open window to attack Taiwan with a distracted United States. However, if you flip the script and you have China attack Taiwan first, and then United States responds to that, Ukraine now has less of a reason to attack the rebels in the Donbass because the United States is now distracted. So they'd have to deal with the rebels and Russia on their own. They wouldn't do that unless they were going for broke. But if we're operating on the assumption that no one's going for broke, they have no reason to do that if the United States is guaranteed to be looking in the other direction. So if China attacks Taiwan, that will not allow that won't open the door for a war in Ukraine. And Russia's not going to be the one to instigate it, like a lot of people are believing. Russia's perfectly fine with letting Ukraine bleed themselves dry on the rebels while giving tacit support to the rebels. Russia's focused on Belarus and Poland right now. Russia's won't Russia will not be the ones to instigate the new round of fighting. Ukraine has to do that. Ukraine, therefore, is the focus point. If U.S. is distracted with China, Ukraine's not going to do that. If U.S. is not distracted with China, then Ukraine has the possibility, a better possibility, that the United States is going to come to their aid if they make this move. So a war in Ukraine that brings in Russia and the United States opens the door for a war between China and Taiwan, whereas a war between China and Taiwan does not affect or actually mitigates the risk of a larger war in the Ukraine. Taiwan is not the domino. Ukraine is. So looking, and we can observe this by looking at the map and looking at the situations that the countries find themselves in here and sort of the conditions the if-then conditions that everyone finds themselves in. I believe that it will be Ukraine who will be the great domino, if there is to be one at all. Because Russia will only respond. They're not going to instigate, uh, instigate as in sending the troops, because uh, they do plenty of instigating already. Russia will not be the one to instigate a larger war. So a war in Taiwan does not open the door for Russia to go after Ukraine, because Ukraine would have to start the new round of fighting, but they would have no reason to do that. So, the two can't balance off each other in that sort of a domino way. Uh, Ukraine fighting the rebels can instigate war with Taiwan. Taiwan falling does not instigate war in Ukraine. Taiwan falling changes virtually nothing for the countries around them except for China and the Philippines. And the Japanese-owned islands that are close to Taiwan, those are the only people who are affected by Taiwan falling to China. A war in Ukraine opens the door for other countries who can exploit the fact that the United States is now distracted. They who are the instigators. So, that's, that's where I break things down here. On... Um, the Taiwan and Ukraine issues and the difference between them because there is also talk that if one happens then the other will happen but due to the nature of the conflicts that's only a one-way thing uh, and I'll, again I'll say it for the millionth time this episode if there is a war in Ukraine it has to be instigated by Ukraine against the rebels and only then does the United States and Russia get involved and from there China can instigate war with Taiwan with a distracted US if China instigates war with Taiwan and the U.S. gets involved, the fact that the U.S. is distracted and the fact that Russia will only respond to Ukrainian actions in the rebel republics means that there is less of a chance of war there. And if even that possibility is not determined on the fate of Taiwan, combined with the fact that none of Taiwan's neighbors have anything changed significantly for them if Taiwan falls leads me to believe 
that Taiwan is not a domino, but Ukraine is. And we'll we'll see. We'll see if I'm wrong, but I believe I'm right. But yeah, I just thought I'd throw that in there. People talk about these issues, and I decided to put my two cents on them, as they sort of as all these sort of feed into each other with uh, the news I've gathered for today's episode. But uh, yeah, lots of things happening. Attempts at peace, attempts at war, you know, the usual. But uh, yeah, that's all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my uh, geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.